Scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Just three verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. And we're going through 1 Thessalonians week to week through October. Then in November, I'm going to do a short series on biblical justice. Uh, just this morning in my reading, uh, follow a, a particular calendar, uh, 2 Samuel 8 has a little reference to uh, David did justly with equity for all the people. So this is a subject that's all through the scriptures and we want to get a, a biblical understanding of, of what this is about. But looking at this passage this morning, end of chapter 3 here, I think the simplest way to take this is, well, it's reflected in the title that I gave the message. Now, what we're going to concern ourselves with here is uh, what does God want for us uh, and what does God want from us? Uh, verse 11 is more of a personal note. Uh, you know, we really want to uh, get back to see you. And then verse 12, we'll look at what God wants for us. He wants for us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Only that Paul, you know, I mean, honesty compels us to say these are some uh, uh, high things to want for us. And then in verse 13, we'll look at verse 13 from the vantage point of what he wants from us. You have a so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Now, before we get to these one, two, who here among us will be our example of increasing, abounding love for one another and for all? Anyone? Class? Bueller? Bueller? Um, who's going to be our example for blamelessness in holiness? <clears throat> who's arrived at this? Look, rather than just plowing into this text, assuming that we're all working for this diligently anyway... I want to acknowledge at the outset what I know to be true, and that is that uh, a lot of us, if, if given the permission to be candid, uh, a lot of us believers in the Lord Jesus would say, instead of increasing love, I have decreasing patience with people. Uh, instead of uh, blameless, I feel hypocritical. What if I read this passage and my first reaction is, I'm just not that good of a Christian, you know, I can, I can never live up to this. Now I know as uh, 51 years on as an evangelical here, I was born into the church, um, I know that for some of us we react that way because we have an outsized sense of performance. That is to say, uh, we were formed, a lot of us, particularly if you grew up in church and evangelical circles, a lot of times uh, it was well-meaning, well-intentioned, but nevertheless, we were formed in such a way that um, it was a performance orientation kind of 
spirituality. Uh, we, were, we were never going to be good enough for God. Maybe you came up in a church that sort of made you feel that or maybe a family that made you feel that. You can never do enough for God or you, you always have this sense of I never do enough for God. Or maybe the spirituality that was uh, modeled for you heavied on personal piety, meaning a certain kind of devotional excellence that if, if you're consistently reading your Bible, uh, if, if you're sharing your faith, if you're praying, if you're not cussing, etc., whatever your list of vices is, uh, then you can feel good about your relationship with God. I remember when that was uh, first uh, turned on its head for me, uh, some of you will remember the name Jerry Bridges. Uh, for my generation and older, Jerry Bridges' books like The Pursuit of Holiness was, uh, was very influential in how a lot of us uh, understood our walk with God. Jerry Bridges is with the Lord now. But I can go back vividly in memory to about 30 years ago now, back when I was spending my last college summer in Florida with a campus ministry. Uh, it was campus outreach, and we were on a beach project in Panama City Beach there. And uh, Lynn was there with me too, my wife, although we broke up on the way down there. Uh, we had a fight between M Montgomery and Dothan. Uh, I was an idiot, and, uh, and that's how that happened. But two or three nights after arriving there, one of the staff knew that Jerry Bridges was in town uh, teaching a retreat uh, down the way, and, and this staff person knew somebody that knew Jerry Bridges, and we were able to get Jerry Bridges to come teach 20 of us who were there early, Lynn and I and these other uh, 20 to 22-year-olds were there to, to disciple small groups for the summer, and he did. He came and surprised us. Suddenly, Jerry Bridges, this renowned author, walks into the room, and he's going to teach us, and this was quite a treat. And his next book that was coming out around that time was called Transforming Grace. And so he'd been really studying and, and, and immersed in this. And, and, you know, we were certainly interested in transformation, being campus leaders. But by the time Bridges was done with us that night, uh, we knew we didn't really know that much about grace. And we didn't know that much about how grace transforms. He went right for the jugular of our carefully groomed piety. And this is how he did it. Speaking to 20 to 22-year-olds, knowing what, what the Christian life was primarily about for us, a lot of performance, he said, look, I want you to imagine that you've just had the best week. Now, of course, I had not. I'd broken up with my girlfriend who was seated on the other side of the room, said some awful things to her. But he said, think about it. You've had the greatest week, your quiet times. You've gotten up early every morning and you've had your quiet times and, and they've been great. And you even shared your faith with that fraternity brother, sorority sister, or fellow athlete on campus. You said no to temptation. You even gave some of the little bit of money you have. You, you gave it uh, last Sunday because uh, you heard something in church about a need and you thought, well, I can do without a couple of meals this week. And he said, if that's been your week, how many of you feel good about asking God to bless your evangelism efforts on the beach this weekend after a week like that? And all 20 of us raised our hands. Why not? Yeah, of course. Done my part. And then he gave us the opposite week. He said, now imagine that uh, you slept in every day. You've just been in a foul mood. You didn't touch your Bible. You never prayed this week. You didn't even pray before your meals. You gave in to familiar sins. 
And now you're going to go out on the beach to tell anyone who will listen about Jesus. How many of you feel like God's going to bless your efforts? And none of us raised our hands. And I've never forgotten this. I can still picture him standing there in his khaki slacks and, you know, white old man shoes. You know how that is. And he said, well, I can see that none of you really understand the grace of God. I was cut to the heart by that. But it's one of the best things I ever heard. Lynn and I got back together that night, by the way. Uh, You'll be happy to know. Uh, But right then was my first inkling that my faith really wasn't about everything that Jesus had done for me. It was about everything that I would be for him. It was about devotional excellence. It was about behavior modification. As someone once put it, altering the great hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, and I better stay found. (laughs) Notice verse 12 reads, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And put that way, verse 12, this says the Lord wants this for us already. If this is going to happen, if I'm going to increase and abound in in love for one another, that's inside the church and for all, that's outside the church. (laughs) This is pretty comprehensive and frankly impossible on my own. I, I have to have the Lord doing this for me. The Lord wants this for me already. So it's not all on me. We have a response to make to him. We do. We have to open ourselves to what he wants for us. But why is this what the Lord wants for us? Why does the Lord want for us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all? It's because this is how we experience in real time his love for us. You can experience God's love for you by looking at the page of Scripture, by taking in the words, the God-soaked nouns and verbs of the Bible that I love, and you do too. Let's remember back for a moment. We saw this earlier in 1 Thessalonians. Go back for just a second to chapter 1 again. We're at the end of chapter 3, but go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power also and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So it wasn't just the doctrinal, there was also the personal. And so now by the time he gets to the end of chapter 3 and he says, the Lord wants this for us, to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, it's because that's how we experience the love God has for us. Let's take this angle now, since we're already on it, it's the first of two considerations today. We'll look first at what the Lord wants for us here in verse 12, and then we'll look at what the Lord wants from us in verse 13 as a second consideration. But first here, what the Lord wants for us, verse 12, he wants for us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And we note again, this is phrased, may the Lord make you, which is not him forcing us. God doesn't force us to love. If he did, that would be behavior modification. That would be closer to programming. But the Lord instead works on us. Pardon. The Lord instead works on us at the motivational level. 
what's underneath behavior. With the Lord, it's not about behavior modification. Just get your actions right. The Lord works on us at the motivational level. What's underneath behavior? Think about it this way. You can fake love behaviorally. I mean, Southerners are the world's most renowned adept at this. <laughs> we can be syrupy, sweet, nice to people we hate. People that move from outside the South here, they think, man, everybody in the world here is just the nicest people. And you go, well, let me give you an inside track. All right. As Southerners, we might not really like you, but we'll still be nice to you. That, that you will get, you know, in this. And it takes a while for people to pick up on that cue. But you cannot fake increasing and abounding love. You can fake love behaviorally. You can act like you love somebody. But the reason you can't fake increasing and abounding love is because that will always take you to people that you would otherwise ignore, oppose, or reject, or avoid. People you would dismiss because you see them as the sum total of their problems or they hold particular viewpoints that you can't stand. Increasing, abounding love can't be faked. And the reason it's the real deal is because it will take us to people we would otherwise ignore, oppose, or reject. God works on the motivational structures of our hearts, which is underneath and behind behavior. And the way we resist this, resist him doing this, is whenever we seal anyone off in hatred of them or indifference. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. But how we know God is making us increase and abound in love for one another and for all is those seals get broken. All those ways we hermetically seal people off from us. Think about it this way. Increase and abound are terms of generosity. Yes? This is generosity with love. Not just, I'm trying to love you, but <laughs> generosity. Think about generosity. In, what, in which direction does your generosity go? Typically. Does it go to people who have plenty and don't need any more? Or does your generosity go to people who have less? Usually goes that direction. Increase and abound are terms of generosity. What motivates generosity? It's not what you gain from it because you're giving away when you're being generous. You're depleting your own resources. You're limiting your own ability to, to meet all of your wants and desires. What motivates generous love? That I would actually move towards someone that I would otherwise ignore or oppose or resist. I would make room for them. I would make at least the attempt with them. What motivates generous love? Look at how verse 12 is phrased. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. What motivates generous love? So that we're willing to move toward people we would otherwise ignore, oppose, or reject, or if we're unwilling, God works on that? Because those two are included in all. The all includes those we would ignore, those we would oppose, those we reject. What motivates this is people who are looking to stay open to God. What motive, I mean, who does this in our divided times? Who increases and abounds in love for people they don't like? 
for people they're opposed to? Who does this? Where can you look around and find this happening? This is a divided era. And the divisions show up in the church. And so we look at a passage that says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Who does that? People who are looking to stay open to God do that. People who are looking to stay open to God. That's what motivates us, wanting to see what God will do. How do we open ourselves up to that? What's our response God wants us to love generously. That doesn't mean sloppy. It doesn't mean accept every position people take as equally valid. Sometimes people do that under the banner of loving. That love means I quit whatever convictions don't fit with the spirit of the times. I quit whatever is potentially offensive to somebody else. No, it doesn't mean that. And we know people around us are full of all kinds of unloveliness. But we also know this about ourselves. The gospel tells us so. Believing the gospel confirms it. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That's how the gospel shows us. If I believe that in truth, then I believe God did his best for me, which is what love is about. God did his best for me at my most undeserving, whether that undeservingness looked unrighteous or self-righteous in expression or probably both. The New Testament doesn't just say he loves us. It says he lavishes his love upon us in Christ. Lavishes the generosity of love. Never stingy, increasing and abounding love. He seeks nothing for us in practice that he hasn't already practiced himself. What he wants for us is that we in this life get at least some idea of what it's like to love as he loves. But again, we've, we've got to be open to this, open to him doing for us what he wants to do. And what, what does that require? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. One is it requires humbling ourselves. Because when you think about it, the people that you would otherwise avoid, ignore, oppose, reject, it's typically your pride is at work when that's going on. Somehow they're beneath you. Somehow they're not up to snuff where you are. Somehow something is off. And so humbling ourselves so that God can expand our love to people that we would otherwise ignore, oppose, reject. What does that look like, humbling ourselves? It means I'm going to have to learn to overlook some things that can be offensive, not let that stand in the way. You know, love is not warmth of feelings. It's, it's wanting God's best for someone else and endeavoring to, to get that for them as much as it depends on me. Humility means I've got to work at not seeing myself a cut above anyone based upon externals. My address, uh, the tags on my clothes, the nameplate on my car, socioeconomic kinds of, of standards, or, or, you know, if you're younger, that you have better looks or better athletic ability. You have to work on humility. 
We stay open to God through cultivating humility, which is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Another way to open ourselves to God doing for us what he wants to do in this way is through practicing gentleness with people. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness means not running over people with your strength. There's a memoirist uh, named Mary Carr, and she wrote a book on writing memoir called The Art of Memoir. And she says as an example in her book that she grew up in an alcoholic's home, alcoholics plural, both mom and dad in her case. And all the, you know, the stuff that comes with that. And she says it would be very easy for her in her writing, and she wrote a lot about growing up in that home, but she said she never wanted to hang the jargon alcoholic on her parents. Instead, she pictures herself pouring their bottles of vodka down the sink. You get the point as the reader, but you're not hung up on the jargon. That's gentleness. We stay open to God, what he wants to do for us in increasing our love through practicing gentleness with people. Gentleness is not a, 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 a factor of personality. It's an application of theology and of the doctrine of the cross that says the footing is equal there. Practicing gentleness with people, not running over them with where you're stronger than they are, where you're more sure than they are. Why can't you get this? Now let's take the second consideration. What does God want from us? That's a few things on what God wants for us from verse 12, now verse 13. What does God want from us? And how do we render to him what he wants from us? Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. That's it in a phrase. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's all he wants from us. Only that, Lord, only that, blameless in holiness. I can shut the Bible and we can go home. Never have to meet because we all got that, right? Blameless in holiness. How in the world am I going to even begin to pull that off? Well, here's how we have to come at it. He's already made us holy in Christ. So the blameless factor, what's that about? Well, sorry to define it with a negative, but that's essentially about not being hypocritical. This is an endorsement uh, and an injunction, if you will, to not be hypocritical. To be blameless is to not be hypocritical. We have to develop a healthy, even a holy fear of hypocrisy. Now, that's not paranoia. It's not wanting anything of me to get in the way of anyone being able to access Jesus and have all these hurdles they've got to clear. Jesus, who is holiness personified, by the way, who is holiness accessible. The whole purpose in Jesus coming here was to welcome us into something that would otherwise crush us, which is the holiness of God. He takes the initiative, we give the response. If I've been welcomed into his holiness, I get to wear his holiness as it were. He covers me in it by his actions on my behalf. Then let my actions be anything but hypocritical. Why? What's so bad with hypocrisy? I'm not going to take any shots at us here. It's low-hanging fruit in preaching to point out hypocrisies. We all have them, myself included. 
What I do want to say is that the gospel is good news to hypocrites also. Jesus was hard on hypocrites. Uh, the religious leaders of his day were full of it, and he was sick of it. Uh, they were in bed with Rome and Herod. They were enriching themselves off the people's poverty. The religious leaders were justifying how they honored the law with their words, the Mosaic law in their case, but not their actions, and so on, etc., and so on. Jesus' worst spoken judgments, you can go back and look at them. Matthew 23 is a good place to look at these later if you're curious. His worst spoken judgments were against religious hypocrisy, and the reason is because it is the antithesis of holiness. Hypocrisy is on the other end of the spectrum. The gospel is good news to hypocrites also, that you can be on the other pole from holiness, totally, and yet he can take you from there and make you blameless in holiness. I once was lost, but now I'm found, so I better stay found. No. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I don't heal my own blindness. God does that, and as he does, I come to see that God can use me and will, not if my life is perfect. He'll use me in my faults and flaws as well, but he will work in me, and he will work through me and for me. But what he wants from me is blameless in holiness. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, verse 13, before our God and Father, the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Notice that word saints. A saint is one who's been made holy to God by God's action on our behalf in Christ. And so a saint is then someone with a vested interest in rendering to God what God wants from us, not in order to get something from God, but because of what God's already given. A saint is someone who is endeavoring in this life he or she lives to be done with substitute saviors because they just make us hypocritical, to stop seeking from sin what we should find in our Savior. This is the course of a lifetime. In fact, if you want to see what blameless and holiness looks like, look at the rest of the text in chapter 4. This will be next week's text. Let me just read it to you, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, verse 1, chapter 4, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here's his example. Verse 4, that each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the path of lusts like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What is this? It's what blameless in holiness looks like. Sexual integrity is the example. And by the way, parents, this will be the text next week, so I'm not going to be lurid. Um, 
you know, in this text or sensationalize it, but this will be the subject. So just take a thought for that with uh, the kiddos in the room. Sexual immorality is a well-traveled way of hypocrisy. It's one of the most common kinds. That's why he employs it as an example. It's not because Christians are all beat up about this. It's because, well, frankly, and we've seen it in our own day and time, it functions as another gospel. And that's the way we're going to come at it. We seek from this particular sin, as we do all sins, but this one in particular, we seek to to find something for ourselves that we won't find from our Savior. Sexual liberation is actually another gospel. It functions today as its own kind of enlightenment. It's a kind of gospel. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Until then, what kind of people are we to be? The short answer is that we're to be people of the bread and the cup. What God wants for us and from us comes together in communion when we take this together momentarily from now. What he wants for us is to know that with him is generous forgiveness. What he wants from us is that we take what he freely offers. The act of eating and drinking, ingesting the elements is a picture. It's an audiovisual of our taking the forgiveness that God generously offers through his son into ourselves as, as nourishment, as we do nourishment. What he wants for us is to remember the cost he alone paid so we could be justified by his grace. We can respond to God as God desires us to without feeling like this is uh, something impossible because we know God is for us in this. We can't clean ourselves up. We need him to do that for us even as we need him to do everything for us if our response to him is going to be faithful. What he wants from us is that we with eager longing anticipate his making good on every promise he's made to us in Christ. For as often as we eat and drink this Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes again, meaning he really died, his death, until he comes again, meaning he lives. You were given on the way in a little cup, looks like this. If you're unfamiliar with it, please note before you open it, that on the top is a little white wafer, and so there's the membrane you open for that first. And then the second membrane gets you to what's in the cup. As we move into communion now, if you'll think with me about the night of Jesus' betrayal and the crucifixion that followed. In between the betrayal and the crucifixion was a kangaroo court of injustices, the two greatest justice systems the world has ever known, the Roman and the Jewish, both failed the Savior simultaneously and together. But that was according to the purpose of God because something had to happen for us to be accepted by God and it was going to happen that night. It wasn't his manger that redeemed us. It isn't the Lord's Supper that redeems us. Our redemption comes through the cross. 
a heinous thing, the worst form of execution ever imagined by depraved people. And he's with his disciples and they're having supper and he takes bread and he breaks it. Now Psalms says that none of his bones were broken. And so if we actually say, you know, this is his body broken for you, he didn't say that. He said, this is my body given for you. So his body is going to be torn and it's going to be uh, opened and, and, and gashed in all the terrible ways of crucifixion. But none of his bones were broken, according to the Psalms. And that means that he was still in control of himself fully in a marvelous way that's hard for us to conceptualize given the awfulness of the moment. But he took the bread and he broke it and he distributed it among the disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you and as often as you eat it, remember me. In the same meal, same way, he took a cup, a common cup in their case, and he distributed it, and the wine that was inside, he said, what's in this cup represents my blood, that, that a new covenant is going to come into being by what is going to happen hours from then. His blood would be poured out, and that pouring out of an innocent one who was guiltless, one who was flawless and perfect, would cover forever the guilty. And that the way to God would be set through Jesus' blood. And so he said to his disciples, though they didn't fully understand it in the moment, he said this cup represents a new covenant which will come through the pouring out of my blood. And as often as you drink it, you remember me. And we thank God for his gift to us of his son. And we sing a song of praise. Would you stand with me? Now let's sing.